Welcome to Life at the Ballpark. On this episode, you'll hear the story of a high school phenom from Southern California who signed his first professional contract at the age of 17 with the team he grew up rooting for and by one of the greatest characters in Dodger history. And Tommy gets up in the middle of, uh, middle of our living room and he's telling my parents, and only the way Tommy Lasorda can, can say it, he's saying, do you want your son playing Major League Baseball in Boston, Massachusetts? Or do you want him right down the Pasadena freeway at Dodger Stadium? I mean, he could have sold me anything at that time. Welcome to Life at the Ballpark. Sharing stories from players, managers and coaches, writers and broadcasters about their lives around baseball. From the Sandlots to the big league ballparks. Hi, I'm John Frost and my guest today is Tommy Hutton. A veteran of 13 years in the big leagues and almost 40 in the broadcast booth. And with the Marlins since their first World Series title in 1997. Thanks, Tommy, for sharing about your life at the ballpark. Hey, John, how are you? Nice to, uh, nice to talk to you now that we have so much time on our hands. It is a little easier to schedule these conversations, isn't it now? Yeah, it is. Uh, you know, normally this time of year we're hustling and bustling and, and uh, getting ready and, and starting the baseball season and doing everything that, uh, that we do. Uh, as broadcasters for the season. And then I look back years ago doing everything we did as a player to get ready for the season. So this is, it's an interesting time. I had a couple of years uh, when I wasn't broadcasting where I was uh, not working and not getting ready for the season, but it was different because there was stuff on TV. There was uh, baseball on television. And even even in even historically, I mean, you look back at nine eleven or even World War Two, and you you think about there was there the games were still going on at least after nine eleven for a few days, and and now there's nothing going on. There's no NBA. There's no Final Four. There's no Major League Baseball. Yeah, I kind of look back at uh, nineteen eighty one uh, when uh, there was a strike in the in the middle of the year, and and that as it turned out to be my last uh, uh, year as a player, and I remember. We were in Montreal. I was playing with the Expos. The team was at home, and uh, I remember just sitting around because uh, they're there. We didn't know. You didn't know when uh, uh, the the season would resume. And then after about uh, a week or two, uh, my wife and I ended up uh, going down to uh, Vermont. I believe it was my brother-in-law, Dick Ruthman, who pitched for the uh, Phillies. We're married. We're married to uh, sisters, twin sisters. And they had a friend that had a little cabin or something down in, in Vermont. So we drove down from uh, Montreal to meet them and just kind of hung out there for a while. We had a, a, let's see, about a four-year-old. Our oldest was four at the time. And they had a, a little one who was three, two or three. So uh, we played catch and, you know, kind of, again, talked about when things would go. And then after a while of that, we just headed home, which at the time was all the way in California. Uh, and then things uh, were settled. We came back to West Palm Beach where the uh, Expos had spring training, and we were only there for a week. Uh, we weren't there that long, played a few inter-squad games, uh, went up. We actually played a game in Boston against the Red Sox, just an exhibition game. And then the season, and then, oh, I think then they had the All-Star game. They, they had the All-Star game, and then the season resumed. And as it turned out, I got released about a month after that. So it was all for naught. <laughs> hmm. My gosh. Well, we're, we're, we're having this conversation as opening day would have happened. 
And obviously, you're a broadcaster for the Marlins. You began there in, in 97, the first year that they won the World Series. And opening day has been such a part of your life. What was it like for you on opening day when there were no games? Well, you know, I, I, uh, I got thinking about past uh, opening days that, uh, that I'd been involved in. And I, and I went all the way back to the very first one when I was in the minor leagues. Uh, opening day for the uh, Santa Barbara Dodgers. We were in the California League, and uh, I was right out of high school. I was 18 years old, and it was our, uh, our home opener. Uh, and I always remember it because there was a great headline the next day in the local Santa Barbara paper because our pitcher threw a complete game. He was pretty good, by the way. And I had a couple of hits, drove in a few runs, and the headline said, Hutton and Sutton lead the Dodgers to victory. Mm-hmm. So uh, my mother used to keep those uh, uh, old newspaper clippings, and uh, Don Sutton went on to have a pretty good career, a Hall of Fame career. So I remembered that. That was, you know, that was exciting, certainly, to get my professional career underway. And then I was thinking about uh, 1973, my second year with the uh, Philadelphia Phillies. In 72, I'd had pretty good success against uh, Tom Seaver uh, of the Mets. And I was going to open the season in 73, not the everyday first baseman. Uh, Willie Montanez played some first base. Uh, later, a uh, couple of years, we would get Dick Allen came in. So I was, I was a part-time player. But opening day of 73, it was the uh, Phillies opening up in New York. So Steve Carlton pitched against Tom Seaver. And because I'd had success against Seaver, I hit cleanup, which, <laughs> which for a guy, which for a guy who had 22 career home runs is pretty interesting. Actually, Greg Luzinski hit hit behind me. <laughs> so, so that was that was memorable. And I and I will say I was one for three. It was a cold day. It didn't have too many hits. I think each team had five hits, but uh, Seaver Seaver won the game. And then then I, I I fast forward a little bit, a couple of years to uh, to 78. I had been traded to the uh, Toronto Blue Jays, and it was an opportunity. I'd been in Philadelphia for six years, and uh, I was told that, okay, now you're going to get a chance. It was a second-year expansion team, the uh, Blue Jays were, that I was going to get a chance to be their everyday uh, first baseman. So in spring training of that year, 78, I, I got a lot of work in, played a lot. Right at the end of spring training, I think it was the last day of spring training, I'm out with... Uh, uh, Rick Cerrone and Rick Bossetti, a couple of teammates. And all of a sudden, Bossetti looks at me. He said, hey, did you hear? Did you hear we just acquired John Mayberry? And a big left-handed hitter who was with Kansas City. And, and at first I was excited. And then, then I thought, wait a minute, he plays first base. That's all he can play. And so all of a sudden now, Roy Hartsfield uh, calls me in the next day. And he goes, yeah, you probably heard we got Mayberry. We're We'll try to work you in the outfield a little bit. So I was kind of back in the same thing. So one of our outfields, Al Woods, was hurt that that opening day. So we opened up in Detroit uh, in 78, the Blue Jays. We got snowed out the first day. So we had that next day that was off. And the third day, we played the first game. So my first American League game, I played right field, the old Tiger Stadium. And I got a base hit and an RBI off Mark the Bird Fidrich. Mm. So that that one was kind of memorable. Well, you're a Southern California boy. You're, you're from Pasadena. And I assume that you grew up a Dodgers fan. 
I did. It's it's interesting because actually early on, uh, uh, I'm aging myself here. Early on, we didn't have the Dodgers because the Dodgers didn't come out till '58. Uh, I'll, I'll give it away right now, John. You do the math. I was uh, I was 12 okay. when the Dodgers arrived in L.A. Prior to that, I remember my dad and I used to go to uh, old uh, Pacific Coast League games. They had the uh, they called them the L.A. Angels and the Hollywood Stars, mm-hmm. and there were some there were some really good players on on those teams. So I remember being a fan of those teams. But then when the Dodgers came, the first uh, four years they played at the L.A. Coliseum. They didn't move into Dodger Stadium until '62. So I remember going to Dodger games, and it's it is true true that you can remember if you if you're a fan of a team when you're at that impressionable age you can remember the lineup i remember john roseborough catching you know west parker ron fairley at first base jim lefever at second maury wills at short jim gilliam at third uh tommy davis willie davis uh in the outfield and of course colfax and drysdale and those guys so that was uh, that was the team that I, I rooted for. Used to go to a few games, sit way up high in the in the uh, general admission section behind home plate. So you were drafted by the Dodgers, and and you were drafted out of high school. Was that unusual in those days? Uh, no, it was actually more normal back in those days. College baseball, uh, there were only like a couple of powerhouses: USC out in Southern California, uh, Texas always had quite a reputation. In those days, and I was signed in 64, so actually before the first year of the draft. So I actually had a couple of other teams interested. Uh, the Boston Red Sox were, were one of the teams that were interested. And I'll always remember uh, the scout that signed me, Tommy Lasorda, <laughs> was at our house uh, with, uh, with his associate, Ben Wade, longtime scout with the Dodgers. So they're trying to get me to sign with the Dodgers, and I'm telling them I got. I also have this nice offer from the Red Sox too at the at the same time. And Tommy gets up in the middle of uh, middle of our living room and he's telling my parents, in only the way Tommy Lasorda can can say it, he's saying, "Do you want your son playing Major League Baseball in Boston, Massachusetts?" Or do you want him right down the Pasadena freeway at Dodger Stadium? I mean, he could have sold me anything at that time. So we 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 agreed on the on the contract, but the the caveat to the story it was a Friday. I said, Tommy, I can't sign it right now. He goes, Why? I said, There there was an old uh, kind of interim baseball coach that we had at high school. His name was Coach Green. And I said, you know, I always promised Coach Green if I signed a professional contract that I wanted him to be there. He said, well, go get him. I said, well, I can't because it's Friday night and he's the scorekeeper at the, the football game, Friday night football game that was going on. I said, we have to wait till the football game's over. So we waited. Uh, my mom fixed a little dinner. My brother plays piano, my older brother. And so Tommy was singing Italian songs in, in my uh, living room. While my brother played piano, we waited for Coach Green. <laughs> what a great story. And so then you began your you began your professional career with the Dodgers. Now tell me about tell me about your debut in the major leagues. Well, talked about the uh, the year in Santa Barbara, which was nineteen sixty five. Uh, the next year I started in double uh, A 
uh, which th- things don't go quite that fast nowadays. They usually it's rookie ball, low A, high A. So I was in double A my uh, second year. I was 19. I turned 20 during the year um, and, and was having a really good year. And uh, my coach, uh, my manager, uh, Bob Kennedy, uh, actually managed, was one of those managers of the year the Cubs had like six managers. Mm-hmm. And uh, Bob Kennedy was my manager. I learned a lot from him. He's very, he'd help us with a lot of parts of the game that you need to learn when you were young. And I was lead, leading the league in hitting, and he called me in one day, and he goes, you know, the Dodgers want to call you up to AAA, but you need to stay here for another week so you qualify for the batting title uh, because I was leading by quite a bit. So uh, I ended up staying there a week, uh, ended up hitting 340, led the league in hitting, and then I got called up to AAA, and I was in AAA Spokane for the uh, last month of the season and then got called up. Uh, to the Dodgers. And one night after about a week or so, we we're in Los Angeles. Now you got to remember it's my hometown, the team I rooted for. We're, uh, oh, it's about eight or nine to nothing. The Dodgers are leading. Koufax is pitching. Mm. Uh, and with him on the mound, there are probably 55,000 people in the stands. Walter Olson comes down to me and he said, uh, go in and play the, uh, the top of the ninth inning. So that was going to be my debut, one inning of defense mm-hmm. behind Sandy Koufax. So I didn't get any ground balls. I got a couple of throws. I think there was a ground ball to short, and Maury Wills uh, threw one over to me. Uh, and so that was it. That was that was my major league debut. I go back in the clubhouse. I'm excited. I, I don't think my parents were at the game. They were probably listening to the game. There weren't many games on television back then. And I'm sitting in my in my locker and overcome Sandy Koufax, who had just won his 23rd, 24th game, whatever. And and unbeknownst to everybody, that would be his last year, mm-hmm. uh, 1966. He comes over to me and he goes, congratulations for getting in your first major league game. Mm-hmm. Oh, I went, went nuts. <laughs> so that was something that was something that stuck with me over the years. And I always tried to do that to a guy who, you know, got in his first game or maybe got his first base hit because I always, always remember that I saw guy years ago, I think it was 2012 because I think it was the first year of Marlins park. And, uh, uh, Sandy Koufax was getting a tour by, uh, Jeffrey Loria. And I, I was able to go over and, and tell him a little bit about the story kind of nodded like he sort of remembered but you know how that goes he probably didn't but he was nice enough to say that he did mm-hmm. <laughs> and i told him what uh what an impact that had you know when i talk to former players they often will refer to something so memorable about their first game either if they're a pitcher standing on the mound looking at the plate seeing you know, they're facing Willie Stargell or somebody that they grew up <laughs> looking at. And just this idea of realizing that I'm I'm a big leaguer now. Yeah, yeah. I'm playing behind Sandy Koufax. Ma- Maury Wills came up to me after the game. And, and if you can picture in your head the motion of knees knocking together, uh, shaking, Ma- Maury came up to me and he said, hey, do you always catch balls that way? <laughs> <laughs> Coming up, Marlins broadcaster Tommy Hutton shares his Kirk Gibson-like moment. He's too sick to play, but Tommy Lasorda puts him in the game anyway. 
you know, it would really help me as a manager if you put your uniform on and sit on the bench. Because if they see you, then they'll think, well, maybe I can pinch hit him. He's available, blah, blah, blah. As long as you got the uniform on, you're playing today. <laughs> you're listening to this podcast because you have an interest in baseball. If you own a business, what do you think people who call you have an interest in? Yeah, your business. So you need a message on hold. Now, tell your callers about your products and services, locations and hours, special offers and more with a message on hold now. We've been providing telephone on hold messages since 1992, and we can do one for you. Get your custom message on hold now at messageonholdnow.com. Messageonholdnow.com. And now back to my conversation with Tommy Hutton, Major League veteran and Marlins broadcaster. I hope you'll subscribe and share with your friends. Tell me about some of the mentors that you've had. You've already mentioned Tommy Lasorda. Of course, you had a long relationship with Tommy Lasorda. Yeah, because Tommy, I, I mentioned, uh, signed me. And then three, three of the years that I was in the Coast League, uh, he was my manager. And, uh, you know, he was, he was the world's best motivator. I mean, a lot of people over the years, I think, question maybe his, his uh managing abilities uh, technically on the field and all as far as motivating players uh he could get you motivated one day i, I really I, I used to use this lesson to my sons years down the road but one day in spokane i just felt uh, horrible i didn't feel good at all and i i got a hold of tommy and i said tommy i, I i'm not gonna be able to admit i'll just stay here in bed and he said, I'll tell you what, he said, at least come, you know, you can get the trainer to look at you. Maybe he'll give you something. So I got to the clubhouse. I'm laying there on the, on the one training table that we had <laughs> in AAA. And uh, he walks in, he goes, you know, it would really help me as a manager if you put your uniform on and sit on the bench. Because mm-hmm. if they see you, then they'll think, well, maybe I can pinch hit him. He's available, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. So I do that. I, I struggle and get my uniform on. and I'm sitting there in my locker, and he goes, you know what? As long as you got the uniform on, you're playing today. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about your um, your transition to the broadcast booth. Because your last season was, what, 81? Last year, yeah, it was 81. Um yeah, it's a good it's a good question because people always want to know how you transitioned into uh, broadcasting. In in eighty, after the nineteen eighty season, this is hard to do for a, a player, for anybody in sports. But I, in my mind, I knew that the the end was near, mm-hmm. and so uh, I always always had an interest in in uh, broadcasting. I didn't know what kind of broadcasting or Speaking and when I was in Philadelphia, we used to do a lot of speaking engagements at uh, little league banquets and stuff like that, and I always enjoyed that. But anyway, so in in the winter of 1980, I sat down, and this is certainly well before emails and all that, and I, I got a list of different executives with uh, every major league team. I think just about every team, 
might have been somebody in, in scouting, might have been somebody in broadcasting, might have been somebody in another department, but somebody that I knew or that would know me a little bit. And I, and I wrote this letter saying that I knew my career was uh, winding down, but I was interested in, in broadcasting, a broadcast career. And so I sent those letters out to every team. Heard back from maybe half a dozen. Uh, so anyway, fast forward to 81, I'm having a miserable year. Matter of fact, I always tell people, they go, when was your last year of playing? I go, actually, my last year of playing was 1980 because I I didn't do much in 81. (laughs) But anyway, I'm having a miserable year, and I'm on on the field. This is the part that really gets me. John McHale was the general manager, wonderful man, uh, uh, gave me a great opportunity. Uh, He calls me off the field during batting practice, like my group – is hitting. I think we had two more rounds left. And he calls me over into the dugout, and I'm sitting between him. He's on my left. Dick Williams is on my right. He was the manager. And John says, you know, we're, we're going to release you because we got to make room for this guy, this guy, whatever. And in hindsight, I look back on it, and I think, man, I got cheated out of my last two rounds of BP. Uh, <laughs> but when he tells me that, he goes, but we know you have an interest in broadcasting. And if you'd like to remain with the club, and this was in 81 after the, the season had resumed, so this was like sometime in August, if you'd like to remain with the club the rest of the year and help out on the radio wow. uh, during, doing some games. Because back then, there weren't as many TV games. Dave Van Horn and Duke Snyder did the everyday radio. And when they had a CBC game on television, Dave and Duke went over to TV and a fellow by the name of Ron Roosh uh, did the games by himself on radio. So they said you could help Ron on the radio for, for those uh, games that are left. So I, that was a Sunday that I got uh, released. And on Wednesday, uh, I did a game on the radio. My so I always tell people I had, I had uh, uh, a couple of days off uh, in my career of baseball, about 53 years. I had a couple of days off where I didn't work those. And then the days that I didn't work, um, I, I don't know why. I'm not that smart a guy, but I was smart enough to realize, look, I'm not a superstar. I'm not going to get jobs in broadcasting because of my name, because of, I'm a Hall of Famer or a great player. So I'm going to learn, learn the craft a little bit, mm-hmm. and I'm going to learn how to do some play-by-play. So that way I'll have, I'll have a little versatility. So on the games that I didn't work, I used to sit up in a little booth uh, by myself up in the Montreal Olympic Stadium, had a tape player, mm-hmm. had a scorecard. I never knew how to keep score. I had mm-hmm. to kind of uh, teach myself how to keep score. And this, this is another great story. There's a good friend of mine who just recently, a couple of years ago, retired, Jerry Howard. Jerry does the uh, uh, Toronto Blue Jays for years. He did the Toronto Blue Jays. And we were doing in 86 for postseason that tremendous series, the Astros and the Mets championship series. All those extra inning games. Oh, extra inning games. And actually, I talked to, he's the first base coach now with the Marlins. Billy Hatcher hit a huge home run in one of those games. Sure did. But uh, so Jerry and I did those games for a network in Canada. We did them on radio. Jerry that off season was applying for other jobs because he was the number two man up in Toronto to Tom Cheek. 
And uh, so Jerry sent out ta- that, tapes of those games because they were really exciting games. Out of the blue, again, expecting to go back to Montreal, out of the blue, I get a call from uh, uh, an executive with WABC Radio in New York uh, who does the Yankees games. And <laughs> through, through the tapes that Jerry sent, they, they were really looking for a number two broadcaster who'd been a player who could do some play-by-play to pair up with a longtime San Francisco Giant announcer, Hank Greenwald. Anyway, I got hired by WABC Radio for a couple of years to do the Yankees games with uh, Hank Greenwald. Everything happened so fast. I'll always remember asking uh, Larry Durker, who came from the field as a, as a terrific pitcher with the Astros and then managed the Astros a few years. I remember asking him his first year what the biggest transition was, and he said, the, the speed and how fast everything happens. You're in the mm-hmm. dugout and all of a sudden you got to make these decisions and everything happens so fast. And uh, we're not, not quite as tough as a broadcaster to deal with that, but uh, it, it is a little quicker. And then it, it, radio is totally different than television. And I always tell young kids, if they ask about broadcasting, that I, I would suggest learning doing radio because it's, it's, a, it's a better foundation uh, doing the games on the radio and then transitioning to uh, to television. I think if you've just done television, uh, it's hard to go in and do radio. So a lot of guys have done it, but it's not easy. Tell me about Gary Carter as a teammate. Your careers were parallel. You were teammates with the Expos. You be- we were broadcasters for the Marlins during the same period of time. You became golfing buddies in South Florida. Tell me about Gary Carter as a teammate. Yeah, Gary uh, was a was a great friend and was one of those guys when you were on the other team, like when I was with the Phillies and he came up as a rookie, you ha- you hated this guy. You go, "Well, what's this guy all about? He can't be for real. Look at him out there. That can't be. That can't be him." Anyway, then you get traded as I did to the uh to the Expos and we were teammates and then you find out as a teammate that that's just the way he is. You know, it, it, it would it would get some other guys uh, upset on other teams. But you know what? That's just the way Gary Carter was. And uh, this leads to kind of a, a, a funny story. Funny for me, it wasn't as funny for Gary at the time, I don't think. Um, I was broadcasting in the 90s with, uh, with the Toronto Blue Jays on uh, CBC and also doing about 30 – ESPN games. So I'm up in Toronto one day and I get a call. Gary calls me. This is like in, uh, it's like the end of the 90s or during the 96 season. And he, he did the uh, Marlins from 93 through 96. And he goes, Hey, he goes, I I've heard they're They're going to make some changes. The Marlins are in, in the TV booth. You ought to uh, make a few calls. And maybe we could work together like we did in senior baseball league. I thought, oh, that'd be great. So uh, at the time, I believe it was Sports Channel. And I uh, got a hold of the people involved, and I, and I got talking. And uh, when the 96 season ended, I, I you know, was still living here in, in South Florida. And I went down and interviewed uh, with, uh, with the Sports Channel executives and as I got deeper into the interview, all of a sudden I realized they were getting rid of Gary. <laughs> that, that's kind of what happened. Uh, 
he was pretty good about it. We never really, we never really came to blows. And I think the bottom line, he always wanted to be in uniform on the field as a manager. And I think one of the travesties of the game is that he never got the opportunity to manage in the major leagues because wherever he managed in the minor leagues, they always won. Well, and we were talking earlier about the 86 playoffs, that amazing extra inning game between the Mets and the Astros. And, of course, you know, he, he was a key figure in, in the, that, that series and also the, the World Series with the Red Sox. Yeah, he used to tell me in that, that one inning when they came back and won that each guy that went up there said, I'm not going to make the last out. It's not going to be me. And uh, so that's – and when he, he ended up getting a base hit in that inning when they uh, won that game against uh, Boston. So that was – that was a great series for the for the Mets. Tough loss for the Red Sox, but uh, they they ended up making up for it later on. Well, Tommy, this has been a great delight for me. I, I sure appreciate you taking time out and sharing about your life at the ballpark. Hey, my pleasure, John. I, I enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll subscribe and share with your friends. I'm John Frost with Life at the Ballpark.